late Enlightenment, a new imperative began to inform theories of interpretation, the idea that all literary texts should be read in the same way that we read the Bible. However, this assumption concealed a problem. There's no coherent we who read the Bible in the same way. In Secularism and Hermeneutics, Yael Almog shows that several prominent thinkers of the era constituted readers as an imaginary we around which they could form their theories and practices of interpretation. She argues that this conception of interpreters as a universal community established biblical readers as a coherent collective. In the first part of the book, Almog focuses on the 1760s through the 1780s and examines these writers' works on biblical Hebrew and their reliance on the conception of the Old Testament as a cultural rather than religious asset. She reveals how the detachment of textual hermeneutics from confessional affiliation was stimulated by debates on the integration of Jews in Enlightenment Germany. In order for the political community to cohere, certain religious practices were restricted to the private sphere, while textual interpretation, which previously belonged to religious contexts, became the foundation of the public sphere. As interpretive practices were secularized and taken to be universal, they were meant to overcome religious difference. Turning to literature in the early 19th century in the second part of the book, Elmog demonstrates the ways in which new literary genres of realism and lyric poetry disrupted these interpretive reading practices. Literary techniques such as irony and intertextuality disturbed the notion of a stable, universal reader's position and highlighted interpretation as grounded in religious belonging. It's a fascinating big-picture excavation of some of our most fundamental yet unexamined assumptions still informing us today as readers and writers. Yael Almog is an assistant professor of German studies at Durham University. Her research focuses on the interdependence of literary theory, literary production, and theology. More specifically, she looks at secularism, Jewish-Christian encounters, the Jewish-German tradition, and Hebrew literature. She joins me today to talk about her first monograph, Secularism and Hermeneutics. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism. My name's Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by Professor Yale Almog to talk about her new book, Secularism and Hermeneutics. Yale, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field. Well, um, I have always been very interested in um literature and literary theory um, and I'm trained as a German studies uh, specialist but actually I first studied uh, comparative literature for my bachelor's and my master's and um, I'd say that uh, my specialty really um, shifted with my um, migration between different countries. I mean, I'm originally from Israel, but I, um, I studied um, in the United States. This book is, um, you can say, somewhat based on my um, PhD thesis after which, which I completed in uh, in California. Um, so this is just to say that I think that my, that my discipline um, kind of uh, shifted in the sense that um, I think that different countries have uh, different definitions of what what the discipline may uh, entail, um, and this is why when I moved uh, after my PhD, I moved to to Germany and I held uh, several uh, research uh, positions uh, that were in very different fields in uh, history um, and in uh, theology. 
Um, and now I actually came back to uh, return to German studies. I mean, I just uh, began a position as an assistant professor at uh, Durham in the UK. Fantastic. So that's really interesting. So, um, so what do you what perspectives do you think the German context brought specifically to this book? Well, um, the book came out in um, in, intellect, in an intellectual history series, which um, which I think is great that historians um, would be interesting in interested in my work. Um, I did not necessarily expect that when I um, completed a PhD in uh, in German studies in literature, um, and I think that this. The, the fact that I um, uh, took a position in, in uh, that I had a position in intellectual history, uh, a postdoc, and then in theology, um, helped me situate my arguments in um, in different contexts. Okay, I want to start with a context. In fact, because um, I think uh, before we get into the the real meat of the book. Um, just to consider the kind of um, you begin in the 1700s with the uh, the German Enlightenment and their perspectives on reading, uh, but prior to that, um, uh, I think today even the most unsophisticated writers would instinctively know or consider the fact that authors write for a particular readership in mind. Also, the notion that the Bible must be interpreted in some manner in order to make it personally meaningful seems fairly obvious to us today, I I think, for many readers. And so that's why I think books like yours are so exciting, because you're showing us how these fundamental things we take for granted, such as how we read, are actually not obvious or eternal. So maybe start by explaining how the Bible and reading generally was approached prior to the developments you outline in your book. Well, um, I rely in, on in the book on um, some contemporary trends in uh, the research of secularism and in the research of the Enlightenment. And um, I, I would mention perhaps two thinkers that my uh, my work uh, relies on who talk about uh, the Bible and the transformation in the status of the Bible. One of them is uh, Saba Mahmoud, um, who is uh, a part of, you know, the Talal Assad school, we can say, uh, of secularism critique. Um, and people like Mahmoud and Assad, um, have been talking about the Bible as, uh, uh, sorry, about about secularism as an epistemological change, you can say, that namely um, secularism is, is a concept that penetrates a certain um, community, a certain tradition, and really has uh, an immense effect on um, on people's uh, sensibility, on, on the way people conceive uh, the world. And so this is, this is, um, those are sets of ideas that have been uh, really influenced by. Now, the other influence that um, that led to uh, to this book is um, people working in, indeed in intellectual history. And um, I'd mentioned Jonathan Sheehan wrote a book uh, titled The Enlightenment Bible. And uh, there Sheehan um, established that the, the late 18th century um, produced a new artifact. The Bible became a new artifact. And he really showed that um, in that period, in the late Enlightenment, let's say, uh, there has been a huge uh, wave of biblical translations. 
and, uh, and showing this um, this wave helped him establish that um, the Bible became an object that people can um, identify with. There's been a process of personalization, if you will, of, of the Bible. And he showed that um, different readers um, learned how they can um, use the Bible for their own uh, agenda. People approach the Bible from within their own agenda. Now, this is where I'm coming from when I, uh, when I started uh, to write this book, because the question that uh, concerned me was um, the Enlightenment Bible must have been such um, an influential uh, phenomenon that it must have had an effect um, on other fields on other human practices, if you will. And uh, the one that I wanted to focus on is um, literary theory, liter literary interpretation. And the main question that I asked is, how um, does the transformation of the Bible into this uh, personal object um, influence literary theory? Um, the, I would say perhaps that the influence of, of uh, Sabah Mahmoud, of Talal Asad, here is that the question of sensibility of um, it's kind of I have to say, I think that combining um, those two schools um, of thought, it's probably the biggest challenge that I encountered uh, writing this book, because those are two very different approaches to, to the question of secularism. And I hope I managed to do that to some extent. OK, Um well, let's get to uh, Johann Gottfried Herder. Uh, you begin with him, uh, and he began in the late German Enlightenment to argue for a new way of understanding the Bible, as you were talking about, especially the mythology-like tales of the book of Genesis. So essentially, he felt that readers' approach to these ancient writings should be, or should follow from an attempt to understand them as cultural artifacts produced by specific historical contexts. Haman, on the other hand, viewed God as a literal author, such that any textual gaps and inconsistencies in the Bible had to be filled in through one's creativity and faith. So if you could perhaps explain further the differences in these approaches and the benefits and drawbacks that each offer. Yes, it's a complicated um, question. Quickly, I think, yes, uh, quickly yeah. explain. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I, think I would like to take a step back and kind of say a word about why um, why I begin with um, two chapters that uh, focus on Johann Gottfried Herder. Maybe some of the um, listeners are not familiar with him. Um, the, the premise of my book is that um, we today take the interpretation of literature to be neutral to faith. But in fact, literary interpretation has a, a certain religious history. This is, I think, uh, by saying this sentence, I think one can already perhaps see the, um, the influence of, um, of the Talal Assad school of uh, secularism critic that I, I want to uh, reflect on the religious history that uh, gave rise to our uh, idea of uh, literary interpretation. And so literary interpretation, this is my premise, it has certain assumptions that work better with some religious traditions than with others. Now to, to return to uh, Johann Gottfried Herder, um, this really came, uh, the interest in Herder 
um, came from uh, this question of the personal uh, Bible, of uh, having a Bible to which every reader could relate, every reader could interpret the Bible. So some, that might sound actually like the influence of Martin Luther, right? Like that Martin Luther, and you asked me to kind of go even beyond the 18th century in your previous question. Martin Luther, with, with his translation of the Bible into German, of, co- of course, has been taken to revolutionize um, the reading and the interpretation of the Bible, together with uh, phenomena such as uh, print and literacy. Um, the Luther translation enabled... Um, people to read the Bible and interpret it. And now the reason why I don't start with Luther, but with Herder is that um, I think that Luther was not interested in the notion of reason as such, in the Vernunft, if you will, in the, the, the German term. And this is why I'm, I'm starting my book with uh, with, a her- with yeah two Herder capitals, uh, chapters, I'm sorry, that was a German word, Two, uh, two chapters on uh, on Herder and um, a comparison, uh, indeed, between uh, Herder and um, and his good friend uh, Haman. Um, so um, Johann Gottfried Herder, it, he's he's interesting to me because he's someone who wrote thousands of pages on the Hebrew Bible, and um, what I try to show in the first two chapters is that uh, it's really in those uh, biblical commentaries that he came up with um, terminology that then became constitutive to modern literary theory. Um, and to answer now your question more directly about the differences between um, between um, Herder and Hamann, um, Frederick Beiser, a very important scholar of German idealism, compared the two and, um, and said that uh, in a nutshell, um, Herder secularized some of uh, Haman ideas. I take both uh, Haman and Herder to be um, very important to a new approach to the Hebrew Bible. And this approach is, uh, is really changing the way uh, Protestant theologians during um, the late 18th century conceive the role of biblical reading. Because um, I would say that previously, the focus on uh, reading the Bible was um, the results, the end results, if you will. The, the sort of um, I, I, the question is, what is the divine imperative that we um, apprehend by, by reading the Bible? And um, this is an approach that took the Bible to be um, the product of divine revelation. Now, Herder and Haman really insist that the Bible is uh, a wonderful and supreme artifact, but not because it's uh, divine. Um, Rather, the Bible is uh, fantastic because it's a human. It's a human artifact. This, this of course, was very, very provocative. Um, the, The Hebrew Bible specifically um, was very conducive for those thinkers' attempts to think about human reason. When you compare the Old Testament and the New Testament, you you can see that the Old Testament is, is a difficult text. It's fragmented. It has been circulated for thousands and thousands of years. It's hard to understand. Even if you read Hebrew, it's hard to understand. Some words um, are only used a few times or, or once, and, and we don't know what they mean. And, and when you think about it, um, 
theoreticians during that time that are uh, are starting to get interested in in questions about you know in what reason is in one what's the human apparatus of understanding the world this is this made the old testament in fact um the difficulty to read it made it a, a very um suitable object for their inquiries now um this is i think that this is um a very important moment in history because all of a sudden, the Bible becomes uh, very important, not, not because it's perfect, exactly the opposite, because it's imperfect. Um, and the, the main difference that I would describe between Herder and Haman on that regard is that Herder um, claims that this um, process of reading, where each reader engages with the Bible on his or, or her terms and employs um, his or her understanding, you know, I would say even uh, reason when reading the Bible, this is really um, a process that can yield a sort of objective truth, a better understanding of how the Bible was written, of what the Bible meant. Herder, um, he's, he's well-known, I'd say, in the field of uh, history and historiography, because he um, developed theories about uh, contextualization of cultural artifacts um, in the context of the, the period and the culture that produced them. And this is really something that he develops in his readings of the Hebrew Bible. Okay, interesting. Um, continuing in this strain of putting it in the context of literary theory, you also uh, draw a connection between Haman's approach and Walter Benjamin's philosophies of language. So could you tell us about that? Yeah, this is a very ambitious part of the, the first <laughs> chapter of the book. Um, well, Walter Benjamin is a prominent philosopher uh, who has famously commented on many different uh, periods uh, in history, such as the Baroque, antiquity, and it almost seems peculiar that he hasn't referred to the Enlightenment, in fact. And I argue at the end of my first chapter that he actually did. Um, and um, there is an essay um, that he wrote in 1916, on language as such and on the language of men. I came across um, an article of, uh, of a very prominent um, scholar of German literature, St Stefan Moses, uh, who, who writes about this, um, this uh, essay. And Moses argues that at the center of Benjamin's um, essay is uh, those uh, language theories in the late Enlightenment that were very occupied with uh, the Genesis stories. So Stefan Moses uh, argues that at the center of Benjamin's essay are uh, theories from the late Enlightenment, theories exactly by um, Herder and Haman, that um, argue that um, the, the idea that men could um, use language already immediately after he was created in the, so this is again the, the Genesis stories, um, those are really, those, this notion of uh, the human use of the Hebrew language um, can teach us about language uh, per se. So, I mean, what I find very interesting with uh, Walter Benjamin is, uh, in a sense, 
uh, I think his reading of uh, Herder and Hamann is very close to my own <laughs> reading in the sense that uh, when people think about the Enlightenment, Enlightenment positivism, if you will, namely our belief that we can use language in a productive way to mark the objects around us, people tend to think this is a secular belief. And uh, what Benjamin um, is claiming in a nutshell is that um, this Enlightenment positivism is in fact intertwined with uh, theology. Hmm. Going back to, are you talking about the uh, Tower of Babel story in Genesis? Yeah, yes, it's a part of, this is a, certainly um, something that I uh, discuss in, in this uh, first chapter in the book. Okay, and so he's making the claim that, therefore, um, what people take as Enlightenment notions about the function of language actually stems from from much older ideas that can be found, uh, traced in the Bible. Is that what you're saying? Yes. I mean, I'd say briefly put, what Benjamin, I think, is perceptive of is that the relationship of um, Enlightenment language philosophy, the idea that we humans have the ability to use the language in a productive way to um, to mark the objects in our surroundings, to communicate our the impressions of our senses. This is an Enlightenment legacy indeed. And this legacy actually builds on Enlightenment theology and on um, uh, theological views um, that relate already to the to the biblical um, myth of um, the creation of man. Okay. All right. In chapter two, you talk about how Herder was joined by other eminent figures of the period, such as Johann Wolfgang Goethe, in viewing the Bible as a sublime aesthetic artifact equally available to all readers, Christians and Jews alike. So again, this has a lot to do with language. And you write that in a time that felt some animosity towards Jews, theologians made the distinction between the ancient Hebrew language of the Old Testament, which they revered, and the Jewish people in their midst. So tell us more about that. How does that work? Yeah, First of all, I wanted to say um, in that second chapter, I'm not claiming that someone like Goethe um, promoted political rights for Jews, equal rights or, or something like that. Actually, the, the way I use this phrase is that the Bible was available, became available to all readers alike, exactly because of its unreachability, the inability to reach it. And this is an important point. Um, what I'm claiming on, in chapter two is that um, someone like Goethe idealized the Bible, that aesthetic approaches to the Bible made it into this uh, supreme spiritual artifact that, yes, nobody can actually reach. And if nobody can reach it, if nobody can fully understand it, then it doesn't matter if you're a uh, Christian or Jewish. Okay, so equally unavailable almost. Right, right. <laughs> okay. yeah, it's a paradox indeed, it's a paradox. <laughs> okay, um, so you also write that this new way of understanding the Bible is a sublime aesthetic artifact, uh, and I'll quote you here, invented, shaped, and negotiated new arguments about aesthetics. So help us to understand what that means. Yeah, so f- first of all, this notion of um, availability that relies on the, the Bible being unavailable, I mean, what I want to point out really with this idealization of the Bible is that um, 
the materiality of the Bible was forgotten. The Bible is written in, in Hebrew and in, in Greek and a little bit of Aramaic. Not everybody can understand it. But in my view, the, the Bible as an artifact of the late Enlightenment is um, really um, an idealized object, a supreme object that is beyond understanding, if you will. And the core of the argument in the chapter, and this is really the sentence that you um, rightly uh, pointed out, is that um, while creating this ideal object, people were practicing, were developing literary interpretation. So um, I will rephrase that. Ever since the 18th century, scholars have recognized that there was a trend in the late Enlightenment, which is namely approaching the Bible with terms that were taken from aesthetic theory. So there were there were eminent theologians such as Robert Loth, um, such as Herder, and they started in the late 18th century, they started to talk about biblical poetry using um, terms like verse, like alliteration, like sound, terms that had previously been used to talk about poetry in general. And what I'm claiming really is that um, it's something else, okay? It's not, it's not just recognizing that the Bible became an aesthetic artifact. I'm claiming that those aesthetic theories were not developed before those people approached the Bible. I hope, I hope that the difference is clear, that um, it's not merely taking your um, theory about aesthetics and about uh, how people should read literary texts and then applying them to the Bible. What I claim is that those people said perhaps that they were, they said that they're going to apply aesthetics um, to the Bible, but actually with this gesture, they came up uh, with totally new ideas of about aesthetics, about readership. Okay. Yeah, I think I, I do understand the, dis, uh, the distinction you're making there. Um, interesting. Okay, uh, moving on to chapter three, uh, you examine more closely the tension between ideas about the Bible as being universally relevant and valuable to all people in all contexts, and about it being specifically a pillar of traditional Judaism. So you look in particular at the way uh, Moses Mendelssohn attempted to bridge these potentially contradictory views. Um, so I was wondering if you could explain uh that a little bit more. You use the term situated universalism. So I wanted to just get you to explain what you mean by those things. Yeah, that's also quite a complicated uh, theme that I'm trying to develop. Um, so in a nutshell, um, my book locates two simultaneous phenomena that are happening in the late Enlightenment. One I, I've already talked about um, the development of hermeneutics, namely of uh, literary interpretation, um, that is uh, built on a new approach to the Bible. Um, and the second phenomenon, and this is when Mendelssohn comes up, is the really revolutionary um, notion of Jewish emancipation. Um, the idea that Jews should be treated as equal citizens, the Jews might be entitled of such rights as uh, as religious uh, freedom. And uh, what's interesting to me is the disparity between those two phenomena. 
because um, when you look at hermeneutics, hermeneutics has, uh, you could say, a liberating potential. Um, when uh, when Herder and Haman open up the Bible as um, as an object that is first and foremost a human object, then uh, we no longer need someone like the priest or for for the or, or or another religious leader to explain us the Bible. And there is a sense of a, a universal community of readers. And um, now, where is then the disparity between this and? Um, Jews wanting to get political rights. Um, I, I talk about it while bringing uh, a letter that uh, Moses Mendelssohn writes, Johann Gottfried Helder. It's a really fascinating late letter from uh, June uh, 1780. And in this letter, Mendelssohn is, uh, is writing Herder, you own the gift of putting yourself in the place and mindset of your fellow men in order to judge him. And this is really, Mendelssohn really manages to capture Herder's hermeneutics, because Herder is all about um, understanding the culture that produced the text. And so Her- this is an, an approach that Herder develops in his readings of the Hebrew Bible. Um, but this is an approach that uh, is really constitutive to um, literary reading and to, uh, histor- to an historical understanding of foreign cultures. So um, what Mendelssohn is asking in his letter is um, perhaps you can actually, perhaps you also have some knowledge of rabbinic Hebrew. Perhaps Herder, who knows Hebrew uh, quite well, as Mendelssohn, as Mendel- as Mendelssohn uh, is recognizing, uh, perhaps Herder could also even uh, give some credit, <laughs> if you will, to traditional Jewish um, understanding of uh, the Bible. Now, this is really where the disparity lies because Herder develops his um, theory of hermeneutics from the notion that, out of the notion that the Bible has been corrupted. Okay, we need to have this understanding of the ancients who produced this text because Jews in the Middle Ages. Um, throughout history, Jews have corrupted the text. The text has been lost. That's why we have to bridge the gap between us uh, modern Germans, Germans, let's say, in the late Enlightenment, and the ancient Hebrew authors. So this is this is why I start the, the Mendelssohn chapter with this uh, letter. Okay. Um so Mendelssohn also brought his ability to bridge contradictory views into his writings on government as well. Um, you also talk about his book, Jerusalem, in which he argues both for the separation of church and state, but also upholds the governance of ancient Jerusalem as an ideal example, even though, according to the Bible, Jerusalem was ruled by a theocracy headed by God. So how does he square this circle? Well, he he really doesn't. <laughs> he really okay. doesn't. I mean, I I don't think that he manages to reconcile, um, say, um, those problems. That, namely, on the one hand, Jerusalem is of course um, advertising the idea of separation of church and state. It's a seminal text um, for this uh, idea. And on the other hand, as you as, as you said. Jerusalem contains this uh, almost mythical um, portrayal of uh, the beginning of, you know, of the Jewish uh, state where um, governance was uh, basically perfect. God ruled the world. And so 
how how is that separation of church and state, of course. So uh, in the book, I am not trying to reconcile this. Quite the contrary. I'm not trying to resolve those uh, contradictions in Mendelssohn. My attempt, my attempt is different. Um, I try to show that this contradiction of seeing Jews as singular people and their views as equal citizens, um, it resonates with um, hermeneutics, with questions occurring in hermeneutic during this period, that namely, um, we, th- this is exactly, again, the, the letter to Herder, that on the one hand, I think that Mendelssohn recognizes the great potential of hermeneutics as, um, as this new, very exciting um, way to, to understand humans as, as belonging to um, this universal community, as equal members of this community who have abilities, you know, who have uh, reason. He recognizes the potential, and at the same time, um, I think that Mendelssohn, as a, as a religious Jew, um, continues to insist on the singularity of Jews as readers of the Bible. Hmm. Okay, so he's saying on the one hand that um, viewing literature from an interpreta- interpretive perspective shows us that all people basically have the same kind of ability to approach a text, and yet... Jewish people and Jewish readers are still different in some way? Is yes, that what you're indeed. Saying? And th- this is a contradiction. This is a contradiction. It's a problem in Mendelssohn that, in my opinion, cannot be resolved. That, in my opinion, he does not resolve it. Okay. Um, and I'm, I'm not... Uh, so, yeah, I mean, scholars have certainly recognized the um, disparity in Jerusalem between the uh, theocracy, the, this um, mythical image of... Um, the ancient state of Israel and the, the the advocating of suppression of church and state. People have definitely uh, noticed that disparity. Um, and what my contribution is not to try to resolve it, but to say that the same disparity exists in, Mo- in Mendelssohn's views on hermeneutics. And this is, again, the tension between um, looking at Jews as singular people, as, you know, the chosen people, and... Um, wanting them to be equal citizens. I mean, and one thing that I noticed that scholars don't don't talk about that much is um, really how strange it is that Mendelssohn, who um, likes aesthetics very much, I mean, Mendelssohn's writings on aesthetics uh, kind of introduced him to the German Republic of Letters. This is how he kind of um, managed to become a prominent thinker. He has his early writings on aesthetics um, that very much follow um, Kantian ideas of aesthetic. And so we have that in his his oeuvre. And at the same time, uh, when you read a book like Jerusalem, Mendelssohn really um, complains about the script, about how in modernity, Everybody is obsessed with reading, and he he talks about the dangers, um, the dangers of reading. So I ask myself, indeed, uh, how does that work together? If you like aesthetics, so how can you um, have like, how how can you find reading to be such a dangerous uh, practice? Wow, that's yeah, what an interesting contradiction. I love the fact I'm a, I research literature as well uh, in my scholarly life. And I just, um, I love the fact that these, some of these biggest questions about being human 
um, come back to uh, literature, how we read aesthetic theory. Just, that just thrills me, I guess, but because <laughs> uh, of my own particular inclinations. Yeah, I'm glad um, you resonated with you. I mean, Mendelssohn is not often taken on as a, as a literary scholar, and I actually think he has really interesting things to say to us about um, reading. Yeah, fascinating. And the fact that, do you think like he, he couldn't see the contradiction in his own work? I think he, I think he had problems. I mean, I think that um, there is a big, there is a big difference between someone like uh, Herder and someone like Mendelssohn, or if you will, someone like Mendelssohn or someone like Immanuel Kant. And the difference is that um, you know, Immanuel Kant, nobody twists his arm to say, well, that's not quite right. I mean, uh, of course, uh, every thinker at that time had uh, restrictions. I mean, the church. Uh, etc. But Mendelssohn uh, had it really bad. Like Mendelssohn is an Orthodox Jew um, growing up, you know, learning traditional sources. And all of a sudden he finds himself as a very prominent figure in the in the German Republic of Letters. And so what I'm saying is that he was involved in polemics where um, he was a part of the um, yeah, the, the, that community of leading intellectuals and leading leading uh, philosophers. And at the same time, he had an agenda to propagate that really nobody else had in his uh, circle. And that namely um, the traditional view of the religious community, Jews as a religious community that is insular, that is somewhat isolated, where Jews are the chosen people, um, and they have been circulated the Bible, of course, with not, without corrupting it, and and those uh, views are um, very, very, very different than the views of his, um, yeah, of his interlocutors. Hmm. Well, let's move on now to the 19th century, uh, which was more interested in Greek and the New Testament than it was in Hebrew and the Old Testament. So can you tell us a little bit more about this shift in interest? Yeah. Um, so the, the, the fourth uh, chapter of my book focuses on Schleimacher. And for Schleimacher, the model object of uh, hermeneutics is uh, the New Testament, no longer the Old Testament. And then you get the idea that uh, Hebrew is a corrupted language, and that's why we should not focus on it um, that much. I mean, of course, theologians in Germany continued um, continue till today to to uh, read Hebrew, but um, in Forschleimacher, as he develops his uh, theory of hermeneutics, he focuses on the New Testament and um, and specifically on the historical moment where uh, Christ brought about a transformation to the world. So whereas for someone like Herder, the target for hermeneutics is the origins of civilization, for someone like Schleimacher, what he tries to to, uh, trace is a moment, a shift in civilization. Okay. So in this chapter two, in particular, you look at Heinrich Heine's novel, The Rabbi of Bacharach, because its portrayals of liturgical readings show how interpretation is influenced by religious belonging and traditionalist training. So you explain that this undercuts the notions about religious neutrality in interpretation that were prevalent at the time. So please tell us about this. 
yeah, that's perhaps uh, an ambitious aspect of my book is that um, I don't only describe how hermeneutics became this modern, religiously neutral practice, but I actually uh, claim that literature challenges this religious neutrality. So I've already said that, that in my opinion, um, hermeneutics has a religious history. And um, there, there is a strength that is still very important in um, literature, in literary scholarship, which is literary hermeneutics. The idea that we can uh, read text and um, penetrate the, the meanings that the author um, had in mind. And um, what I what I argue with regard to Heine is that Heine really reminds us that readers, including modern readers, are a part of religious communities, and that this affiliation, this belonging to a religious community, totally affects the way they read texts. So for thousands of years, that's the way I see it. For thousands of years, hermeneutics was a term and a practice that was understood in the context of insular religious communities, of those traditions. And in the late Enlightenment, there is a transformation of that, that to a large degree, the affiliation with, uh, with religious communities um, has changed. That all of a sudden, um, I'm, one is not no, no longer just a, a Jew and a Christian. All of a sudden, one is also a part of humankind, of the Menschengeschlecht. And um, I think that Heine does a very good job in uh, reminding us that um, religious affiliations continue to inform the way we read texts. Okay. Um, so chapter five continues uh, with the 19th century, when literary texts respond to the feeling that the Bible is no longer the, understood as a product of divine revelation. Um, and instead, uh, it represents an ancient stagnant mode of thinking. So please tell us more about this. Yes, in uh, chapter five, I turn to later stages of German philosophy, and namely, I look at Hegel, who represents in his uh, The Spirit of Christianity and its Faith, uh, the idea that Jews are inferior readers, uh, in that they can't uh, transcend the literal meaning of the Bible. Now, so for someone like Hegel, this uh, fault uh, has to do with the fact that Jews insist in his mind on uh, primitive laws the main one being uh, the eye for an eye principle. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I hope this uh, answers your question. Yeah, so um, so that, um, that characterization of the way Jews read influences in general the perspective on on uh, how the Bible should be understood for, for Christians more broadly. Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, it's a really ancient accusation, right? That, I mean, goes way beyond the, the late Enlightenment. Uh, that Christians have accused Jews that they cannot uh, transcend. They cannot transcend uh, the, the written word and understand that the Old Testament is, in fact, uh, important in that it is a configuration of the, uh, the New Testament, right? So this is something that we see 
way before Hegel. The reason why I, I bring Hegel is that um, the, I believe that this uh, theological view is at the center of his uh, philosophy. Um, and so, as I said before, I was drawn to German idealism because those thinkers um, came up with a very general theory of what, uh, what human beings are, the way humans um, understand the world. Um, and I want to point out that um, in those theories, their um, notion of biblical readership played an important role. Hmm. Okay. Um, to elaborate on how literature may take issue with the modern transformation of the Bible, um, you look at the 1842 crime novella, The Jew's Beach. Uh, so, and that's the tree rather than the, the place with sand. <laughs> right. Right. So what, what yeah, do Jews look don't hang out so much at the beach. No, I'm joking. <laughs> and so they, what do we uh, learn yeah. from this piece of literature? Yeah, um, so uh, Annette von Droste-Hülshoff novel is a novella is is very prominent in the history of German literature, and this is because it's taken as the uh, proponent of crime literature, of crime literature. Germans just love crime literature. Uh, actually, everything that has to do with crime, like TV shows, and um, <laughs> this novella is is very interesting. Um, this is also a part of my attempt to argue that you know secularism is not um, a successful and complete endeavor, right? Like I mean, and uh, I think that literature uh, continues to remind us of that, of the fact that um, there there are still disparities between religious communities. And those disparities hinder us from participating in the same way in this uh, modern community of readers. And um, the text specifically, you not know, to 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 go into that that novella. Um, so at the center of the novella is uh, a crime investigation of the murder of uh, a Jew called Aaron. And um, it's a very unsuccessful. Wow! Now a spoiler. <laughs> nobody, we will. We, nobody really uh, actually knows who killed um, the guy. Even at the end of the novella, it it remains uh, unclear. Now, um, in the middle of the novella, uh, all of a sudden you get an he a Hebrew sentence, and without without um, a translation into German, and this is this is very disturbing. Um, for someone who doesn't read Hebrew. So I talked before about how uh, the materiality of the Bible has been forgotten and how this um, forgetfulness was the basis of the idealization of the Bible. So what I'm, what I'm claiming is that when someone like Heine or when someone like Droste Hülshoff reminds us of the materiality of the Bible, then in fact, they destabilize literary interpretation. Hmm. It's interesting perhaps to mention that, that a translation of this, uh, this sentence from the novella appears in the very ending, in the very last line of the novella. And then we find out that the sentence means something along, along the lines of, uh, indeed, eye for an eye, uh, the Italian uh, principle, the eye, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. I mean, not, not quite in those words, but this is basically the, uh, the meaning of, uh, of the, um, of the sentence. And this is, I think, very disturbing to the German reader because uh, 
not only because of, you know, of course, it's, it's scary. The Jew has been murdered and the Jews are going to take revenge. This is a part of it. But I think more so because uh, it reminds us of the religious history um, of uh, interpretation. Interesting. Well, in your final chapter, uh, you write that hermeneutics functions in a sense as a replacement for confessional religions and the social functions they provide through interpretation, communal reading, and gathering around texts. So I think this is a really lovely idea, and I thought it might be a good way to open to some concluding thoughts. Yeah, well, to be frank, um, those are really just... Uh general um my general feeling that hermeneutics is still a very very successful practice i mean today we like thinking about uh you know uh after postmodernism, of course that hermeneutics is no longer um really that prominent but i actually think it really is and um i think that the tradition of literary hermeneutics is um is what we what we learn and teach at schools at universities uh, how to read a poem, how to interpret the poem and, and kind of um, penetrate the hidden meanings of a poem and unearth those meanings. And, uh, and I think that really um, today at uh, universities, at uh, schools, we really don't think that learning to, to interpret the text has anything to do with, uh, with our faith, with our religious faith, of, with whether we are Jews or Christians. And um, perhaps I'll just say one word about that, which is um, I, I also argue in, in those concluding uh, paragraphs that um, hermeneutics of suspicion, uh, which is, is a broader phenomenon, right? I mean, you think of, of someone like Paul Ricoeur or Freud, people who, who uh, approach reality trying to uh, unearth, trying to expose um, new ideas of reality, basically trying to dispel kind of common sense ideas of reality. This hermeneutics of, suspe of suspicion, I argue at the end, is also a product, in fact, of the religious history of hermeneutics. So um, it's really hard to get away from it. Hmm. Well, as a literary teacher, I think that's wonderful. <laughs> um, I feel like, too, that um, just... Uh, when we all read the same thing, it's almost like having shared experiences as well. Um, so it, it sort of brings a sense of community on, on that primary level, in addition to the secondary level of interpreting what we might take that to mean. Yeah, but you see, I mean, uh, my uh, my use of the word community here is, uh, is somewhat critical because um, I think that when we came up with a community, a community of readers, we lost other forms of communities, namely religious communities, traditional communities, where you are part of a singular uh, people for that matter. And so I think we, we gained this universal community of readers, but at the cost of uh, losing, uh, or I, I, don't, I wouldn't say losing, but it's at the cost of um, other communities that are not, uh, not present in the same way that they were before. Do you see that as being a result of these communities that are imagined communities in a sense that have sprouted up around um, 
around something common like literature? Like, do you see those as being directly related or just that they're happening at the same time? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that modernity occurred. I mean, right. I, I think that, yeah, I mean, I, um, first of all, I'm, I'm glad you rephrased, you phrased it in this way because I, my book is not about like right and right or wrong. Like I'm not, I don't have an alternative, like a better, uh, right. Yeah. Um, I describe a process that I, uh, take to be at the core of modernity. Um, and I think that, you know, religious communities, of course, still exist, right? Like we still go to synagogues and churches and um, we still perpetuate traditions that existed for thousands of years. Um, but at the same time, we have this new idea of um Menschengeschlecht, you know, of humankind. I mean, I, I bring one example to kind of elucidate that because it's quite abstract and which is um, the way children learn to to read um, in um, traditional Jewish schools, where you they still take uh, five-year-old boys like they have for thousands of years, and they uh, they serve the boys um, a sheet of paper that is covered with uh, honey, or namely, you have on that sheet the Hebrew letters, the Hebrew alphabet, and it's smeared with honey, and then the boys lick the honey, and um, that's their first encounter with script with the alphabet. And then on the same day, they receive their personal copy of the Hebrew Bible. Now, um, this for me really embodies my argument in the book or this kind of the phenomena that, um, that I'm describing, which is that when we are a part of a traditional religious community, this affiliation changes the way, or, or not changes, it forms the way that we uh, relate to texts, that we learn to read and write. And, and I write after I describe this, uh, this ceremony that um, on the one hand, you know, this, we still do that, right? Like it's, it's still happening, but at the same time, that sweetness of um, encountering script is no longer merely um, by means of being Jewish, let's say, by means of being the chosen people, but all of a sudden, um, there are new ideas about building, let's say, about uh, education. The fact that when I go to school, when I go to university, and I learn how to interpret a poem, um, I take part in um, this human, in this universal human community. I'm really glad that you brought up that story, because uh, you begin your final chapter with that image of the young boys being first introduced to language through this I just think it's magical, this idea that you would try to imbue young children with um, this same sense of reverence for the written word, which is almost a magical thing. Um, I just think that's such a lovely image and such a lovely idea. Um, so thanks very much for sharing that story with us again here. Um, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. I fear I've taken up a lot of your time, but it's been really wonderful to be able to talk about your book. Thank you very much. Before we go, though, can you tell us what you're currently working on? Yes, on something completely different. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm working on the idea that one day there will be a huge return of Jews to Europe, like a mass return of Jews and to the continent. And um, I'm looking at um, immigrants, at uh, authors writing in German um, abroad, and also at people who came back to Germany after uh, 1945. 
and I'm interested in visualizations of Europe as a homeland for Jews and uh, more specifically, images of return to Europe as a return to the Jewish homeland. And I'm very occupied with how those uh, presentations emulate the vocabulary of early Zionism, of kind of coming back, going back to uh, to a Jewish homeland. And of course, I show the, the set of uh, paradoxes and irony that... Uh, um, right, that's in core, let's say, when um, when in those uh, writings and in those works of art. All right. Well, that sounds really good. I want to thank you again for being on the show today, Yale. I really enjoyed your book. I was so glad to have a chance to talk with you about it in person. I want to wish you a happy rest of the weekend. Thank you. You too. All right. Goodbye. Goodbye. I want to thank you for listening to New Books in Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Professor Yale Almog about her new book, Secularism and Hermeneutics. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review on iTunes, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. The New Books Network is a not-for-profit organization, so all the buzz you can help us generate goes a long way to supporting this work. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Lindland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books and Secularism channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you à la prochaine until my next conversation about new books in secularism.